Section 8 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. Dante and Beatrice. Part 2. It was not until well into the 16th century that requirements, examinations, system and discipline began to dawn upon the world. Before that, a student was a kind of troubadour, a cross between a monk and a crusader, a knight-errant of love and letters, and the moral code for him did not apply. An argument can be made for his chivalric tendencies, and his pretense for learning had its place, for affectation is better than indifference. The roistering student is not wholly bad. Poetry and love-making were to the velvet-breeched youth the real business of life. Like knights in armour, he often wore the colours of a lady who merely smiled at him from a latticed window. If she dropped for him her glove or handkerchief, he was in the seventh heaven. As his intents were not honourable, nor his purpose marriage, it made no difference whether the lady was married or single, young or old. Whether the love remained upon a platonic and purely poetic basis depended, of course, entirely upon the lady and her watchful relatives. If the family were poor and the lover rich, these things might have a bearing. We hear of alliances in those days, not dishonourable, where the husband was complacent and looked upon it as a distinction to have worthy signs of greatness pay court to his wife. Such men were referred to as fribblers or tame-cats. The woman was often much older than the alleged student, and this seems to have been no disadvantage, for charms are ripe, are oft alluring to a certain type of youth. Such things now would lead to headlines in the daily papers and snapshots of all parties concerned, followed by divorce court proceedings. Then, even among honourable husbands, the only move was to hire an extra Pinkerton duenna to attend the fair one, and to smile in satisfaction over the possession of a wife so much coveted, the joy of all ownership being largely the ability to excite envy. College rowdyism, cane rushes, duels, bloody Monday, the fag system and hazings are all surviving traditions of these so-called universities, where people who had the price sent their sons into the pedagogic bullring. As, for centuries, youths who were destined for the priesthood were the only ones educated, so the monks were the first teachers, and the monastery was the college. In the twelfth century a college was merely a monkery that took in boarders, and learning was acquired by absorption. No records were kept of the students, they simply paid a small fee, were given a badge, and attended lectures when they got ready. Some students stayed and studied for years, thinking the business of life was to cram with facts. Such bachelor grubbers with fixed incomes, like pensioners in a soldier's home, old and grey, are now to be seen occasionally in European universities, sticklers for technicalities, hot after declensions, and happy when they close in on a new exception to a Greek verb, giving it no quarter. When they come to die, they leave earth with but a single regret, 
they have never been fully able to compass the ablative. But the rough-and-tumble student was the rule, with nose deep into stein, exaggerating little things into great, making woeful ballad to his mistress's eyebrow. Such was Milord Hamlet, to whom young Dante bears a strange resemblance. A university like this, where the students governed themselves and the duties of the faculty consisted largely in protecting the property, had its advantages. We will come back to self-government yet, but higher up in the scale. It was like a big country school in a country town, where lessons in self-reliance are handed out with the bark on. The survival of the fittest prevails, and out of the mass emerges now and then a strong man who makes his mark upon the times. Dante was back home in Florence from his sojourn abroad, a bit of a dandy, no doubt, with a becoming dash and a touch of sophomoric boldness. He had not forgotten Beatrice Portinari. Often had he thought of her, the princess of his dreams, and all the dames he had met had been measured with her as a standard. She had been married about a year before to a rich banker, Simone di Bardi. This did not trouble Dante. She was too far removed from him to be an actual reality, and so he just waved her husband and dismissed him with a shrug. Beside that, young married women have a charm all of their own. They are wiser than maidens, more companionable. Innocence is not wholly commendable, at least not to a university student. And now, face to face, Dante and Beatrice meet. It is the first, the last, the only time they are to meet on earth. They meet. She is walking with two women friends, one on each side. She is clothed in pure white, her friends in darker raiment. She looks like an angel of light. Dante and Beatrice are not expected to meet. There is no time for embarrassment. How did she know that young Dante Alighieri had returned? She must have been dreaming of him, thinking of him. There she stands right before him, tall, graceful, intellectual, smiling. Eyes look into eyes and flash recognition. The earth seems to swirl under Dante's feet. He uncovers his head and is about to sink to his knees. But she sustains him with a word of welcome and holds out the tips of her fingers for him to touch. She is older now than he. She is married, and a married woman of eighteen may surely reassure her boy who is only eighteen. We have missed you from the church and from our streets. You look well, gentle sir. Welcome back to our Florence. Good evening. The three women move on. Dante tries to, but stands rooted like one of those human trees he was afterward to see in purgatory. He follows her with his eyes, and just once she looks back and smiles as the three women are lost in the throng. But that chance, unexpected meeting, the salutation and the smile were to write themselves into the Vita Nuova. Dante had indeed begun a new life. The city of Florence at this time was prosperous. The churches had their pagan holidays, fates and festivals, and gaiety was the rule. Out at Vallambrosa and Viesole, where the leaves fall, there were courts of love where poets chanted their lays 
and singers sang. In all this life Dante took a prominent part, for while he was not of noble birth, he was of noble bearing. There were rival political parties then in Florence, and instead of settling their difficulties at the poles, they had recourse to the cobblestone and club. When the Guelphs routed the Ghibellines from the city, Dante served as a soldier, or was sworn in as a deputy sheriff, and did some valiant fighting for the Guelphs, for which privilege he was to pay when the Ghibellines came back. Just what his everyday occupation was, we are not sure, but as he was admitted a member of the Guild of Apothecaries, we assume that he clerked in a drug store, and often expressed himself thus, Lady, I am all out of liverwort today, but I have something just as good. And he read her a few stanzas from the Vita Nuova, which he had just written behind the screen at the prescription counter. In the year 1285, Charles of Anjou, brother of St. Louis, came to Florence, and Dante was appointed one of the committee to look after his entertainment. Charles was a man of intelligence and discrimination, a lover of letters and art. He and Dante became fast friends, and it seems Dante became a kind of honorary member of his court. Dante could paint a little, he played on the harp, and he also recited his own poems. His love of Beatrice di Bardi was an open secret. All Florence knew of it. He had sung her beauty, her art, her intelligence, in a way that made both locally famous. He had written a poem on the sixty chief bells of Florence, and in this list he had not placed Beatrice first, but ninth. Just why he did this, unless to emphasise his favourite number, we do not know. In any event, it made more talk than if he had placed her first. And once at church, where he had followed Beatrice, he made eyes openly at another lady, to distract the attention of the observing public. The plan worked so well that Beatrice, seeing the flirtation, shortly afterward met Dante and cut him dead, or, to use his own phrase, withheld her salutation. This caused the young man such bitter pain that he wrote a veiled poem explaining the actual facts. These facts were that out of his great love for Beatrice, in order to protect her good name, he had openly made love to another. I said that the fact that Beatrice had declined to speak to Dante as they passed by had caused him bitter pain. This is true, but after a few days the matter took on a new light. If Beatrice was indifferent to him, why should she be displeased when he had made eyes at another? She evidently was jealous, and Dante was in a paradise of delight, or in purgatory, or both, according to the way the wind sat. There is no reason to suppose that Dante and Beatrice ever met and talked things over. She was closely guarded and evidently ran no risk of smirching her good name by associating with a troubadour student. He could sing songs about her. This she could not help. But beyond this, there was nothing doing. Only once after this did they come near meeting. It was at a wedding party where Dante had gone evidently without an invitation. He inwardly debated whether he should remain to the feast or not, and the eyes had it. He was about to be seated at the table, 
when a sudden sense of first heat and then cold came over him, and he grasped his chair for support. The light seemed blinding. He closed his eyes and then opened them, and looking up, on the opposite side of the room, he saw his Beatrice. A friend, seeing his agitation and thinking him ill, led him forth into the open air, and there chafed his icy fingers, asking, "'What can it be? What's the matter?' And Dante answered, "'Of a surety I have set my feet on a point of life, beyond which he must not pass, who would return.'" Immediately thereafter, probably the next day, Dante began a poem, very carefully thought out, in celebration of the beauty and virtue of Beatrice. He had written but one stanza when he tells us that the Lord God of Justice called my most gracious lady to himself. And Beatrice was dead, aged twenty-five years. Through her death, Dante was indeed wedded to her memory. He calls her the bride of his soul. We cannot resign from life gracefully. Work has to be performed, even when calamity comes, and we stand by an open grave and ask old Job's question, If a man die, shall he live again? Dante felt sure that Beatrice must live again in all her loveliness. Heaven had need of her, he cries in his grief, and then again, She belonged not here, and so God took her to himself. At first he was dumb with sorrow, and then tears came to his relief, and a little later he eased his soul through expression. He indicted an open letter, a kind of poetic proclamation to the citizens of Florence, in which he rehearsed their loss and offered them consolation in the thought that they now had a guardian angel in heaven. The lover, like an artist or skilled workman, always exaggerates the importance of his passion and links his love with the universal welfare of mankind. And stay, after all, he may be right. Who knows? So a year passed away in sadness, with a few bad turnings into sensuality, followed by repenting in verse. It was the anniversary of her death, and Dante was outlining angels to illustrate his sonnets, wherein he apotheosized Beatrice. And behold, as he daydreamed of his Beatrice, sweet consolation came in double form. First he saw a gentle lady who looked very much like the lady he lost. Lovers are always looking for resemblances, on the street, in churches, at the theatre or the concert, in travel, looking always, ever looking for the face and form of the beloved. Strange resemblances are observed. Persons are followed. The gait, height, attire, carriage of the head are noted, and hearts beat fast. So Dante saw a lady who seemed to have the same dignity of carriage, a like nobility of feature, a look as luminous and a glance as telling as those of Beatrice. Evidently he paid court to her with so much success that he turned from her and recriminated himself for having his passion aroused by a counterfeit. She looked the part, but her feet were clay, and so were heart and head, and Dante turned again to his ideal, Beatrice in heaven. And with the turning came the thought of paradise. 
he would visit Beatrice in heaven, and she would meet him at the gates and guide the way. The visit was to be one personally conducted. Every great and beautiful thing was once an unuttered thought, and we know the time and almost the place where Dante conceived the idea of the divine comedy. The new Beatrice he had found was only a plaster of Paris cast of the original. Dante's mind recoiled from her to the genuine, that is, to the intangible, which proves that even commonplace women have their uses. At this time, while he was revolving the nebulous Commedia in his mind, he read Cicero's Essay on Friendship and dived deep into the philosophy of Epictetus and Plato. Then he printed a card in big letters and placed it on his table where he could see it continually. Philosophy is a cure for love. But it wasn't, except for a few days when he wrote some stanzas directed to the world, declaring that his former poems referring to Beatrice pictured her merely as Philosophy, the beautiful woman, daughter of the great emperor of the universe. He declared that all of his odes to his gentle lady were odes to philosophy, to which all wise men turn for consolation in time of trouble. Nothing matters much. Pish! It was the struggle of the poet and the good man trying to convince himself that he travels fastest who travels alone. Dante must have held the stern and placid pose of Plato, the confirmed bachelor, for a full week. Then tears came and melted his artificial granite. And as for Plato, the confirmed bachelor, legend has it that he was confirmed by a woman. In the train of Boccaccio travelled a nephew of Dante, who had his illustrious uncle's interesting history at his tongue's end. By this nephew we are told that the marriage of Dante and Gemma Donati in 1292, when Dante was 27, was a little matter arranged by the friends of both parties. Dante was dreamy, melancholy and unreliable. Marriage would soon sober his poetic debauch and cause him to settle down. Ruskin, it will be remembered, was also looked after by the matchmakers in much the same way. So Dante was married. Some say that his wife was the gentle lady who looked like Beatrice, but this is pure conjecture. Four children were born to them in seven years. One of these was named Beatrice, which seems to prove that the wife of Dante was aware of his great passion. One of the sons became a college professor and wrote a commentary on the Commedia and also an unneeded defence of his father's character and motives in making love to a married lady. Dante was a man of influence in the affairs of the city. He occupied civic offices of distinction, wrote addresses and occasionally poems, in which he glorified his friends and referred scathingly to his political adversaries. Gemma must have been a woman of more than average brain and intelligence, for when her husband was banished from Florence by the successful Ghibellines, she kept her little family together, worked hard, educated her children, and it is said by Boccaccio lived honourably and indulged in no repining. So far as we know, Dante sent no remittances home. He moved from one university to another 
and accepted invitations from nobility to tarry at their castles. He dressed in melancholy black and read his poems to polite assemblies. Now and then he gave lectures. He was followed by spies, or thought he was, and now and then quarrelled with his associates or host, and made due note of the fact, leaving the matter to be adjusted when he had time and wanted raw stock for his writings. And all the time he mourned not for the loss of Gemma and his children, but for Beatrice. She it was who met him and Virgil at the gates of paradise, and guided them about the place, explaining its art, ethics and economics, and pointing out the notables. Dante placed in paradise all those who had befriended him most and praised his poems. People he did not like he deposited in hell, for Dante was human. That is what hell is for, a place to put people who disagree with us. Milton was profoundly influenced by Dante, and in fact was very much like him, save that, though he had the felicity to be legally married three times, yet there is no sign of passionate love in his life. Henley says that without Dante we should have had no Milton, and how much Dante and Milton have influenced the popular conception of the Christian religion, no man can say. Even as conservative a man as Archdeacon Farrer in one of his Clark lectures said, Our orthodox faith seems to trace a genesis to the genius of Dante, with St. Paul and Jesus as secondary or contributing influences. After five years wandering, Dante was notified that he could return to Florence on making due apology to the reigning powers and walking in the procession of humble transgressors. The letter he wrote in reply is still in existence. He scorned pardon, since he had been guilty of no offence, and he would return with honour or not at all. This letter secured him a second indictment, wherein it was provided that he should be burned alive if he set foot inside the Republic. This sentence was not revoked until 1494, and as Dante had then been dead more than a hundred years, it was of small avail on earth. The plan, however, of pardoning dead men was so that their souls could be gotten out of purgatory legally, the idea being that man's law and justice were closely woven with the law of God, and that God punished offences against the state, just as he would offences against the church. Hence it was necessary for the state and church to quash their indictment before God could do the same. People who think that governments and religious denominations are divine institutions will see the consistency and necessity of Lorenzo de' Medici and Pope Alexander IV combining and issuing a pardon in Dante's favour 170 years after his death. He surely had been in purgatory long enough. Dante died at Ravenna in 1321, aged 56 years. It seems that he had gone there to see his daughter Beatrice, who was in a nunnery just outside the city walls. There his dust rests. If it be true that much of modern Christianity traces to Dante, it is no less true that he is the father of modern literature. He is the first writer of worth to emerge out of that night of darkness called the Middle Ages. His language is tender and full of sweet, gentle imagery. He knew the value of symbols, and his words often cast a purple shadow, 
His style is pliable, flexible, fluid, and he shows rare skill in suggesting a thing that it would be absurd to describe. Dante was an artist in words and in imagination a master. The history of literature can never be written and the name of Dante left out. And he, of all writers, both ancient and modern, most vividly portrays the truth that without human love there would be no such thing as poetry. End of section 8